when people ask me about the podcast, I'm going to be like, it was great. I, t- I went off. I had a cup of coffee while they were talking. I came back. They were still talking. So then I answered some emails. Then they asked me a question. I was a little distracted, but I, an- I tried to answer. Uh, this is going in the cold this open. Is going in. <laughs> <laughs> Definition of a podcast. <laughs> Two guys interviewing each other. So good. I'm Rob. And I'm Marty. And welcome to Trades Planning, a podcast that tries to make sense of international trade, business, and expat life without putting you to sleep. In episode 56, we'll talk about how a magical piece of software that compensates for chip chomping we will. saved the podcast. Early returns from COP28, labor versus capital redux, and of course, and we do keep an eye on these things, the adventures of a rare duck in Geneva. Later on, we'll talk to Valérie Picard, head of trade at the International Chamber of Commerce, about whether businesses become less engaged in trade policy debates, how they deal with an expanding trade agenda, and if multilateral institutions are really fit for purpose. And we'll throw in a few points on listener feedback and sneak in a news roundup. So let's get into it. We're recording remotely and we don't want any technical snafus. Welcome everyone to episode number 56. That would be the atomic number of barium, comma white. It's a soft, silvery, alkaline earth metal. And because it's high chemically reactive, barium is never found in nature, but it is a component of high temperature superconductors. And it reminds us of romantic songs by Barry White. White. If you're in the UK. 56 is also the number of Lawrence Taylor, made famous from the New York Giants. So it's only half of our listeners will get that. Also, only half of them will get that it's the number of Joe DiMaggio's favorite hit streak. Sounds like somebody from Staten Island, but he's not, and he played for the Yankees. You'll be happy to know that the average human is around 56% bacteria. And that that Rob is probably particularly keen to know that 56 is the number of the French department Morbihan, which is not a J.R. Tolkien place in his famous books. It's definitely not. 56 is the country code for Chile. Speaking of, I actually once met a Chilean named Mm -hmm. Santiago. (laughs) It's also the name of a town in Arkansas, but nobody cares. So we'll move on. From Santiago, Chile, Arkansas. As always, before we move on to the good stuff, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already. Make sure you catch our future episodes coming out. And better yet, you can also share it with a friend or a stranger. You can find us anywhere you get your podcast. Subscribe to all of them and do leave a review. Before I let you talk, Rob, I've had a fantastic piece of listener feedback we had uh, come in recently, which is that, quote, everyone should be listening to TS, especially the parenting advice, which this person particularly loved lately. However, he mentioned that they, as in us, lose me when they get to the trade stuff. So everything except the trade stuff. Happens to all of us, man. Parenting advice, life hacks, drinking uh, alcohol reviews. What else can we do that people will listen to that's not related to trade? Well, of course, a day-by-day coverage of trees in Geneva. Yeah, we got to keep up to date with that or talk about new bike paths, things like that. To be fair, this person who wrote in, he's from the banking sector, if I understood it correctly, so I can understand why we lost him on the trade stuff. Speaking of, we'll share photos of my kid. You don't sound very happy about that, Rob. That's just another shot of that same kid. Yeah, but in a different... Yeah, slight variation. (laughs) Doing what you were doing before, but calling it a different name. (laughs) Exactly. Slight variation on a theme. Thank He's cute, though. I appreciate it. I'll give you that. He does look like me, so, you know, there's that. So what have you been hearing? Well, you know, we cover the tech beat 
We're very tech we do? savvy. For instance, we've just adopted Squadcast, which is a worse version of if, Zoom if, as, if a, that was as, possible. as an upgrade. Wait, well, we're going to try WebEx. Just wait. So there's another piece of software, which I think really could revolutionize trade planning. As you know, I enjoy a beverage while trade planning, and often along with a beverage, perhaps some peanuts or a or the odd Dorito. You pronounce um, it like you're from Chile, actually. According to Dorito. So according to some people, this chomping of chips on, on the headphones can be irritating, especially if it's in your ear and especially if it's on a Zoom call. These can be amplified when people are using headsets, which are often worn by gamers or podcasters like ourselves, many of whom spend hours with these things on their heads. So uh, Doritos did come to the rescue. They've created a, so a software called Doritos Silent, which has a crunch cancellation software that removes the sounds of chewing from voice chats, Zoom, podcast, or anything that uses headphones. Okay, it was created for gamers, but I think for podcasters, this really could be um, essential. It's you working. can't hear a chip it's being working. chipped on a podcast. Did it really happen? Did it really? <laughs> and nobody was around. How do you know it really happened? <laughs> Jumping right into the important news stories this episode, first up is COP28, which as of this going live will have almost ended. So stay tuned for the full recap for the next episode. But for now, I want to just run through a bit of what's already happened just to keep you updated. First, countries have already committed $400 million as part of a loss and damage fund. And while that's low, it does put the concept of compensation to action and does set a precedent for future action. So that's one of the first things that was announced, and it's uh, good news. Second is that Reuters recently reported that the UAE is also considering a 30 billion with a B climate focused investment fund to support businesses in entering the climate fight, so to speak. And this includes also 5 billion to reduce risk for green investments in the global south, which again is low relative to what's needed. I've seen cost estimates in the trillions per year, anywhere from two to five trillion a year, which is a little bit more than uh, 30 billion, but it's getting us up on the right track. So by 2050, we should be where we need to be in getting all the financing in place, which is good. And finally, COP will continue to put pressure on countries to talk about climate and to make pledges to reduce it. So estimates have shown that uh, emissions are peaking much sooner than they were anticipated in 2015 during that COP, and that current policies will stop warming faster than anticipated. That said, some have reported the UAE was going to use COP to close more oil contracts, you know, killing two birds with one stone or killing all the birds with one stone because they can't breathe anymore. <laughs> Everybody's in town. They also stated that there is no science that the phase out of fossil fuels is necessary to stop global warming, which is a surprise to many. Uh, it also does plan to increase production somewhere between 7 and 42% over the next 10 years, depending on who you ask. So those figures are really covering almost all possibilities. That's the margin for error. But I think there's a lot of encouraging things in there. I still feel we're moving a bit too slow. That's my personal take on this, or at least my emotional reaction to a lot of things that are going on, encouraging nonetheless. Yeah, yeah. I think many would agree with you that we're moving too slow. Even the parties at COP will make speeches about how we're moving too slow. I think the thing that we have to do is find some encouragement in things that have improved, why they've improved, and can they be reinforced by something like COP? And, you know, I was looking around for some things, and one of them is, Everybody has to have a policy related to this since 2015. That's a big step. You've got to talk about it. The policies are increasingly aggressive, so they're not enough by a long shot, but they're much better than they were in 2015. It's not all about COP 2015, but that's one of the things that helps. There's much more renewable energy. It's not enough, but there's much more. There was no loss and damage fund. 
as of the last COP, there was just an agreement to have one. Now it looks like we have one. It's not enough, but, but we do see avenues where things can potentially improve and maybe that will harden a little bit our resolve. And let's see if there's any surprises that come through during the COP. All these multilateral processes, as we've been covering a lot on the show, are struggling, struggling to find trust, struggling to find common purpose. We have energy security that's fighting for a role here. We have people that are saying, if I'm going to be attacked by climate change, I need to sell my oil to defend myself. I just think it's, it's, it's brilliant. And there should be a Mission Impossible movie about selling more oil during, during a climate conference. I just think that's a pretty solid play. When they least expect it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that does it for our rundown of COP. Stay tuned for more on our next episode so we can go into a bit more detail about what has and hasn't been agreed. And yeah, complain a bit more if you're already. Speaking of green, there's been another, I guess you can call it a snag in the green transition. And this time it's labor versus capital again. So we've talked a lot about capital in the past versus labor rights, strikes, things going on. Has labor really found its groove like Stella did? If you listen to the podcast, you'll know that I've always been a bit um, hesitant to say that it's back, but uh, it is sort of chipping away little by little, uh, at least in the U.S. Now we've turning to Sweden and for the first time anywhere in the world, workers for the U.S. car maker Tesla have gone on strike, which is Sweden. Uh, many people will know that it has one of the strongest labor movements in Europe. And so what started as a minor local disagreement has grown to the point that it could have global implications. So potential ripple effects for labor movements all over, as well as auto workers across Europe and the U.S. The dispute began when 130 disgruntled Swedish mechanics had their request for a collective bargaining agreement rejected. And as customary in Sweden, unions and other sectors came out in solidarity. So I thought this is particularly interesting. So dock workers, mail and delivery workers, cleaners and car painters have so far all agreed to refuse to work with uh, Tesla products. And Stockholm's largest taxi company has also stopped buying uh, new Tesla cars for, for its fleet. This podcast has also announced that we refuse to interview any Tesla employees. Moratorium, immediate <laughs> moratorium. Pause and you're hearing it here first, folks. It's a pause in advertising spending. Um, <laughs> so Tesla's biggest worry is that sort of these plucky Swedes uh, embolden more workers, particularly at its German factory, which manufactures 60% of the Tesla sold in Europe. And that share should increase uh, if European countries continue to impose uh, tariffs on electric cars from China, which we've talked about previously. And this is where the remaining 40% currently comes from. So to serve Europe's growing market, the world's second biggest uh, behind China, Tesla plans to double its German workforce from around 11 to 22,000. And now to uh, add insult to injury, the United Auto Workers Union, which is fresh off its renegotiating its labor deals with uh, the, the big three in the U.S., is launching a new campaign to organize 13 non-union uh, automakers in the U.S. after, as I said, securing this new contract with Detroit automakers. So union said this action will cover around 150,000 workers, which is a lot, last I checked. I mean, it, dep it depends on the industry, right? We've seen new and different strategies from the writers. We've seen different strategies that they had. We've seen drivers at various delivery services in the U.S. use certain other tactics. We've seen the auto workers be very successful. We saw this all start in Staten Island. Was it uh, an Amazon warehouse? You're welcome. You're welcome, world. <laughs> You're welcome, Sweden. <laughs> we started it in Staten Island. <laughs> But I think this is one of the best band names I've ever heard. Disgruntled Swedish mechanics. Uh, it started in Staten Island. That's I mean, what you were going for. <laughs> I think it's a little bit of a matter of time, maybe with Tesla, because they're concentrating power. They're concentrating a number of workers. They've got a supply chain, which is relatively delicate. So there are reasons why workers can have leverage. And once workers have leverage and they organize, and once the forces of darkness are not able to suppress it, if I may use that term, 
then that happens. So I think Tesla workers have good leverage. I think the UAW has good leverage right now on the, the industry in general, and especially with fragmenting of different markets, you're not necessarily going to be able to always ship Teslas from China to Europe. So that German factory looks important. The U.S. factories for all these foreign automakers look important. So I think it's a real issue now. Let's see what comes of it and let's take our measure. I've been reading that, in fact, at least the economist and who believes them, but the economist believes that it's been a kind of blue collar bonanza in the past 10 years, that blue collar salaries have gone up relative to white collar salaries so that there's a certain dampening of inequality among wage workers. It's not among everybody. Mm. And that if you see stock market values come down, you see this whole level of inequality come down again because a lot of it's driven by stock prices. So maybe the two things go together, blue collar bonanza, more union power, a reduction in inequality. God bless whoever came up with that phrase, blue collar bonanza. It's good, huh? better than disgruntled mechanics from Sweden. Yeah, mechanics have never had it better, okay? <laughs> it's a bonanza. A third and last story we want to talk about is how Switzerland seems to be backtracking on the plan for a, a minimum corporate tax rate, which was adopted by the OECD a couple of years ago. So on June 18th, almost 80% of the Swiss uh, populace, me included, voted in favor of an amendment to the constitution to allow for a minimum corporate tax rate of 15%. And this was, again, I should mention, the sixth highest approval rate for popular vote in Switzerland in 20 years. So government planned to enforce this deal starting on January 1st, 2024, but four months later, there have been mounting calls for a delay to the reforms. So the, this waning enthusiasm for what was hailed, and we talked about quite a bit back when it was signed on the podcast in 2021, can be explained in part to the, due to the practical challenges of implementing an agreement like this, which is inherently quite complex. As only I should mention a quarter of the 138 countries signed on to the OECD minimum tax deal in October 21 plan to implement it this year. So shout out to the EU, Australia, Japan, South Korea, and of course, Canada, because, you know. That's Canada. Uh, so in addition to the US, which many doubted already that would be ready by 2024, big economic players like China, India, Brazil, along with uh, big business locations such as Singapore, Hong Kong, and of course, the UAE don't plan to implement the deal next year for a variety of factors. Another factor in, is that the rules themselves have changed over the course of the last two years. So this past July, a month after the Swiss vote, the OECD, which some say was under pressure from the US, adopted this transitional safe harbor, quote unquote, rule, which allows a company in a country where the statutory tax rate is at least 20% to be exempt from additional foreign taxes until at least 2026. So all this to say, it um, kind of warded it down quite a bit. Amid these changes, skepticism has been growing not only about the rules themselves, but also the entire process and the OECD's ability to bring people around the table. There's now a fear that the minimum tax deal won't be implemented at all globally, but instead it's more likely that the rules will be watered down more than they have already to such an extent that they end up hurting nobody and the 15 minimum taxes in name only. So it could be an example of doing what you're doing before, but calling it a different name. I didn't expect that one, but that's pretty solid, actually. <laughs> So we're thinking, okay, one way to stop corporate misbehavior is to create some sort of common playing field when it comes to corporate taxes. We don't want people doing a reverse Irish Dutch sandwich or whatever it is to locate it all their problems disgusting. in one place, do all their work <laughs> in another place. Bernie told us that Dutch can't cook. But a little Irish, a little Dutch. So we know that doesn't make sense. This was an idea by the rich countries to all get together and have a kind of common way to do this. And the OECD was a great place to do it. And you remember at the time, Janet Yellen said it was historic. It was going to be a big deal. 
And you and I talked about the Swiss having voted for it. Isn't that cool? The Swiss voted themselves to be part of this movement, which meant Swiss small business would pay more tax, not less, because multi the multinational taxes would, I think, come down in, in the Swiss case. So overall, it seemed like a great idea, but of course there's going to be forces against it. Okay. You talk about complexity. Yes, for sure. But then you got the U.S. is just getting in there saying, hmm, they've actually got something that's literally called, like, what is it? It's a delay in the application of it called the tax haven. We're, we're actually literally calling something a tax haven. So I see why the Swiss may be backtracking because they were on the leading edge and it, it looks like this sort of fragmenting world isn't going to be able to come through on this thing. And I think this was just right. at the beginning of the pandemic when they decided it. But then there's Canada. Thanks, Canada. Really, thanks for being you, honestly. Your beer is expensive, but thank you. We, actually, they do make for great interview guests because every Canadian we've had on this podcast has been uh, top-notch, eh? Good one. They would love that. <laughs> I don't know why I'm thinking of this now, but I just realized people pronounce cop like they're from Boston. Cop. <laughs> cop 28. Cop, cop 28. <laughs> Think of them apples. Where are you going, cop? <laughs> Two different Matt Damon movies. That's amazing. <laughs> what, what the is? Departed crossed with Cop 28. <laughs> Valerie Picard is head of trade at the International Chamber of Commerce. My old job. Based at ICC's global headquarters in Paris, Ms. Picard leads the development of ICC's public policy engagement on issues related to trade, investment, customs, and trade facilitation. Previously, Ms. Picard was the deputy director of the Global Alliance for Trade Facilitation, public-private partnership co-led by the ICC that delivers targeted trade reforms in developing countries. Prior to joining ICC, Ms. Picard practiced law for 20 years, both in the private practice and in-house notably advising on legal matters relating to public-private partnerships and the development and operation of ports and terminals in Africa and Asia. Ms. Picard holds degrees from Duke University's School of Law and Smith College. So, Valerie, thanks for joining us on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. Um, why don't you start off by telling us a little about yourself? How did you end up in the trade space? First, thanks so much for having me on. And I'm glad that we're starting with the trade therapy part of this. Like, right. Yeah. Who, like, right. Yeah. Who hurt you? Talk about myself. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, how much time do you have? Um, <laughs> I'm actually both French and American. So was always quite interested in international affairs, having grown up in sort of two places, but uh, mostly New York City. And I ended up going to law school and I took international trade when I was in law school. So you would have thought that I would have started my career in international trade there, but no, I didn't. I went off and did a bunch of other things, mostly uh, focusing a sort of a, a typical commercial and corporate law practice, and then ended up in-house and then ended up specializing in sort of the, all of the legal aspects that relate to the development and operation of ports and terminals. And that led me to ICC. So, um, there was an opportunity to join ICC, lead the ICC's work within the Global Alliance for Trade Facilitation. So I did about five years of focusing on the trade facilitation agreement where got up in the morning, went to bed at night, and all we thought about was how do you accelerate implementation? Committees, trade facilitation committees. My favorite. We can committee. talk about that for 30 <laughs> minutes. I can go on. And then recently moved into the role of head of trade at ICC, so assumed a, a pure policy role and a broader portfolio, but still, so more than just trade facilitation, but still focused on trade facilitation customs. 
One of the things you're doing as head of trade at ICC, you're helping business to engage with trade policy debates and to try to influence them and to try to interpret what's coming back at them and manage their businesses accordingly. When you and I were together in Bonn, what people were saying was business is less engaged in the trade policy debate. They're less engaged, for instance, on discussions around WTO. That was a little bit what, what I was hearing. Is that your feeling? Or if businesses' engagement in trade policy has changed, how has it changed? No, the companies and our members are still very, very engaged on trade. And trade remains the top priority. The issue is where are they engaged? Because for business to engage, they need to see, one, there needs to be an opportunity to engage. So there needs to be an openness for the real dialogue. And two, there needs to be some results or at least the promise of some results. And so what we've seen and what we know in recent years at the WTO is that the negotiations have stalled. Engagement with business has gone down for for a variety of reasons. So it is certainly true that there may be less business presence at at the moment at the WTO or with the WTO, but that's not because business doesn't value the WTO and the multilateral trading system, quite on the contrary. So what we're seeing is there is a real demand, and I know for reform, and what business wants to see is a functioning and fit for purpose WTO. So very much still valuing it and still using a lot of the the tools of the WTO. One of the things that we could perhaps say is that there may be a tendency to take the WTO for granted. It's become the silent engine of trade today. And well, according to the WTO, 75% of trade relies on its rules. So it's still really important where it's not moving is on making it and updating it for the 21st century. Well, maybe we get to that because even since 2020, when we started the podcast, WTO has, let's say, been under fire. And we've already talked about weaponization of trade, the kind of erosion of trust in trade, even a debate that's almost like trade or not trade, which of course is absurd. So this centers a little bit on WTO, full disclosure, part of my salary is paid by WTO. Good part. Thanks, WTO. So we've been talking a lot about WTO. Everybody recognizes there's issues that they're having trouble negotiating new agreements, that it may not be fit for purpose. So what would reform look like? What would business like to see in a well-functioning WTO? At the moment, we can acknowledge there are a lot of discussions going on at the WTO around reform. They've been doing what we call reform by doing. So we're obviously very encouraging of those discussions and we're supportive. What we're not seeing and what we're calling for and what we think is needed is really both a vision for reform, because if you're going to reform an institution, where are you going towards? And to a roadmap. And so we've just put out a paper on it called How to Fix the WTO, a Framework for Reform. And in, in the way we work through that paper, we did it through extensive consultations with our network, um, which is across the world, but also with over 20 UTO missions in Geneva, representing different parts of the world and differing development levels to really try to get a good sense of, of what was going on. What we're not trying to do with our framework that we've put out is necessarily answer every single question or delve into every single issue, because some of them are quite technical, like when it comes to dispute settlement. The, the main message from business is what's important is that there is a final and binding enforceable decision. How you get there, that's not for business to work out. That's what it needs for the predictability and certainty that business needs to be able to make its investments and trade. And that's what's missing at the moment, that predictability and certainty. 
So what we're looking for overall is what we would call the holistic framework. So coming back to that. So one is, we think it's quite important to reaffirm what the, the common purpose of the system. If you look at the WTO today, since its founding, since, since 1995, there have been a number of, of changes. When Artie was and, in and the one, grade school. Artie was... I was in kindergarten, <laughs> as they say in Deutschland. And what were your views on it then? You were yeah, exactly. I was pretty supporter. angry that, that, that trade wasn't allowing me to get a, a wider variety of crayons to stick up my nose. <laughs> I was only had the blue, the red. I think you had peanut butter back in the day. That was like a big thing. But yeah, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> okay. I'm stuck with that image. Um, <laughs> so the very first thing that we're saying is one, reaffirm, go back to basics, reaffirm the basic principles. That's what we would like to see because we as the business community very much still stand behind those founding principles. And then the second thing that we would like to see is a comprehensive vision for reform. So where do we want to end up? and then a roadmap for reform. And we know that within this framework, not everything is gonna be done at the same time. Some things are gonna take longer. We're certainly not unrealistic and expecting that any of this is gonna be solved necessarily very quickly, but at least put some structure into the reform talks. And also importantly, and this is where the holistic part is so important is approach it holistically. And when we talk about holistic, we're looking at all three functions of the WTO. That's where we would like to start seeing meaningful progress towards reform. So we've put this out, we're sharing it with our government partners in the hope that it's useful to them and that they really see, and I think this is going back to the first question that you asked, is how important the WTO is to business. And and to Rob's salary. Oh, yeah. We are going to issue an amendment to the paper to talk about that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but uh, so... Let me come back to one thing there. You said something really intriguing, which is, so business at sometimes is less present in Geneva, but they're still engaging. How are they engaging differently? Maybe that's not a bad thing. How are they engaging now? For looking at engagement at the WTO, one of the things that we and all of business is asking for is more, and I would say, structured engagement at the WTO. So we do have engagement with the WTO. We as ICC have an excellent relationship with the Secretariat. But if we look at the working level today, there's no path for structured engagement at the WTO. We work with the JSIs. We're invited to provide their request. They'll do an information sharing session or the testee, for example, is a great example because they let us into the room. But of course, those are unstructured discussions. So what we would like to do and to see is from those good practices, but actually bring them into the WTO, into the more formal practices. Because what ends up happening at the end of the day is that if you want results that are actually in line with that, what's happening in the real economy, business needs to be present to be able to inform those discussions. If we want the rules to be fit for purpose, speak to business. So what we're really asking for is more opportunities to bring in business expertise, to bring in business insights, to bring in data, to help the processes within the WTO. Because at the end of the day, business wants the rules, business needs the rules, because that's what brings the predictability and certainty for trading. Hearing you answer Rob's last question, that there's more that the ICC thinks that businesses can do in terms of engaging with WTO. 
Also, the WTO needs to be reformed, brought up to speed for 2023. Both of these things come in within the context of trade and becoming uh, a bit more of a thing over these last couple of years. So we've seen it become more increasingly important. So how does the ICC deal with uh, this expanding agenda? For example, if one of your partners has to now not only worry about uh, a lack of clarity on, on the rules that are coming into force, but now they're going to have to worry about making sure that they're green enough for whichever trade agreement is is going to be agreed upon. How does the ICC wrangle with that issue on top of everything else that you've you've talked about? The trade agenda is really important, and that's actually something that's why there needs to be new rulemaking at the WTO, and that's one of the reasons that reform is so important. One of the things we need to be careful about is not talking about trade as the magical solution to all of the world's problems. It doesn't obviate the need for action in other areas. And so what we at ICC are seeing from a business perspective is really important at this point is we need to ensure effective policy alignments and much deeper collaboration. What we're seeing at the moment is different countries coming up with their own separate legislations and and regulations, creating a lot of very complex regulatory environment for businesses, but there's not enough collaboration and alignment. So what we would like very much is that the WTO collaborate much more closely with the other organizations. And that's why, for example, we're hosting the first ever trade day with ITC. Thank you very much. Never heard of them. (laughs) WTO and UNCTAD. Is there any consternation on the part of business that the agenda is too big? It's getting to be out of hand. We've got labor, we've got environment, even women's empowerment. We've got a lot of things that are coming into WTO. Is this causing WTO to lose focus or is there any concern among business or is it just a matter of saying this is the reality now? There's certainly a lot of concern on the part of business about over and misregulation. What we're saying is we need to address climate change. And at ICC, we're putting a lot of time and investment into how do we address climate change? And we've got a big investment into this. The answer is not do nothing. But what we're saying is trade the place to regulate this. And when there is a measure, it should still be the least trade restrictive possible. So again, it's coming back to this issue of one, there needs to be harmonization of the regulations, because right now it's not just that everybody's addressing these issues, it's that everybody is coming up with their own systems. And the second thing is on standards. We need to harmonize all of the standards. So that way we can come back to the issue of certainty and predictability. But right now it's just an explosion of regulation and different standards that are not harmonized. And that's the issue. Even if working towards the same objective. We do need to move to the more scientific uh, part of the podcast where we ask okay. you some questions that are more related to to you and uh, the crux of the matter. The, the crux of the matter. So, first of all, you know, we talk to people who've lived abroad, they don't live in their home country. You're binational or bicultural, but what have you learned about your home country, let's say the US in this case, while living abroad as an expat that you didn't realize before you left? What did I learn about the United States of America? So I didn't, I've been living in France for over 20 years. So my teachings are now dated. <laughs> and the US has changed a lot since. Uh... There's more freedom now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's even better. <laughs> 
anything struck you when you first moved? It's hard because I went to a French lycée, so I, I actually had a French education and I did the French baccalaureate, and then only then I went into the U.S. system. So to be honest, the cultural shock happened for me when I went from a French educational system to a U.S. college, and I got there and I could not get over how A, confident everyone was, and B, you can sit in on classes and you can, what is it called, audit classes. And I remember one of them raised a hand and asked a question in my head. I was like, oh, that's a really stupid question. And then the professor was so polite. She said, thank you so much for that question. And I thought, oh, this is different. I, I might have just alienated all the French. It's, it's a very different <laughs> way. I would say the shock came at switching from educational systems. Yeah. Artie and I are not aware of this irrational uh, level of high confidence. No, no, I have no idea. That does not make any sense to us at all. (laughs) I'm pretty great. I'm pretty great. So Valerie, you're also from the New York area. I am. And just by looking at you, I'm going to guess you're not from Staten Island. Why would you say that? (laughs) I don't know. So what's wrong with Staten Island? Why is it like it is? And what would you do to correct it? See, the thing is, Rob, if Artie and I were in New York, and we were sitting in a bar somewhere in New York. We could have this conversation. Without we're you. We're not in New York. And yeah, without you. <laughs> so we're not in New York. So, so now you're outnumbered because you've got two New Yorkers. And it's all about solidarity because we both know New York City is the best city in the world. Oh, sorry. Staten Island's in New York or those in New Jersey? Rats aside. There's no rats on Staten Island because they can't swim. Oh, okay. They can't okay. swim. And, and the can, bridge is closed. Can, yeah. We can start talking about old bars and why they're not there anymore. Ah. McSorley's is still there. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah. yeah. Is that a paper-thin pizza? I really enjoy paper-thin crust pizza. You mean crispy? So, so, Rob, where are you from? Not important. I'm from the great state of Wisconsin. Sheboygan. Yeah. Have you ever been to New York? <laughs> I have been to New York, and I really feel like it's so nice. For me, there's a big tree in the middle of it. It's normally around Christmas time. There are rock cats. Yeah, exactly. There's, this um, is it. Just yeah. people that mm-hmm. sing, do musical songs. It's very crowded. Yeah. I did go to Philadelphia this year, and I realized New York is pretty nice. <laughs> Philadelphia. <laughs> I did have this experience where people run up to you and they just shout obscenities at you. Let's be serious. Let's be it's honest. not about you when they do it. Philadelphia's most famous person, Rocky, uh, is not even real. That tells you something. So we are scientific. We're journalists, as you know. And we do ask the same question the same way to all of our Mm -hmm. guests, and that's a way for us to get a more substantial database. We always get the same answer, Alamir. Artie is not so good at this kind of research. You don't talk good either. (laughs) That's called beating the witness. What is your favorite kebab in Geneva, and why? (laughs) This is a very good question. I I, I would love to be able to answer it, but I'm on a French salary, so I actually can't afford kebabs in Geneva. (laughs) (laughs) I come with my victuals whenever I have to come to Geneva. In Paris, what's your favorite fast food? Do they have fast food? They don't have it. Everything is slow. We're going to insult someone if we can call it fast food. There's something disparaging about it. I'm French enough just to be thinking, well, no, why would you want to eat fast? The whole point is to sit down and enjoy (laughs) your meal. So I'm I'm having a little bit of trouble with this concept. I can imagine Valerie in school, in college, slowly eating her a real lunch, lunch, a real lunch, lunch. I should say. And then you've got the Americans scarfing them down like it's Mad Max or drinking their lunch. Yeah, but they were doing it so confidently. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The, The last question we actually wanted to ask was, who is your favorite business and why? She yes. loves all her members. Just yeah, But tell me, what's your favorite business? Whichever one, you... will, whichever one sponsors the podcast. 
Or is that what you're looking for? Is that why I was invited on? Well, it is the ICC, so we figured it's a wider net than just the we're nail salon. A, we're a pre-revenue, high growth potential, <laughs> low asset business. Did you describe OpenAI? Because they exactly, haven't made any exactly. money. We have exactly the same characteristics. They're pretty famous. And two co-founders. Yeah. One of who's going to kick the other one out pretty soon. We need to get a board. I'm going to replace you with AI. <laughs> So, Valerie, it's been a pleasure talking about all this. Before we go, where can people go to to find out more about what you and the work of the ICC are doing? Thanks so much uh, again for having me on and giving me an opportunity to talk. Just go to our website, iccwbo.org, also on LinkedIn. We're in all the usual places, and, and you'll find all of the information that you need to, to contact us and find our report. How to fix WTO. Ten easy steps. Thanks for joining us once again. It's been great talking, and we hope to see you soon in Geneva for KebabCon. So, Artie, there won't be any vibe shift today. Uh, Michelle's out doing some field reporting from Vienna on whether globalization is still with us or not. So instead, we're going to have a UN word of the day. So that brings to my mind the question, how do you define the word upgrade? An upgrade is obviously something better than what you had before. It's, for example, when you're on a flight and they tell you we're upgrading you to business class, as I understand happened to you recently, or you had to pay for your business class ticket, actually. Well, Artie, thanks for asking, because in fact, there were fluttering ideas of a special upgrade, a cheap upgrade. You're already kind of a little bit red-eyed. Maybe you've had a beer on the plane. Who knows what's happened? But you take it in, you get yourself an upgrade. You get on the plane. It's nice. You go left instead of right. Somebody tells you, you know, second left, you go down to left, you go down to seat 3C. What are you sitting in? Hashtag Derek <laughs> Exactly. And you're sitting in a seat that declines just, just two centimeters more than the original seat. Of course, you do get more food, but you get less sleep and it's kept at zero degrees Celsius the whole night. That's a big so centimeter. An upgrade is doing what you were doing before, but paying more for it. Didn't, didn't. But also calling it a different name. And it's a uh, it's an airline that ends with ish. Oh, which airline could it be if it ends with ish? Well, think of this. Amish airlines. British, Turkish, Flemish. I forgot about British. They don't fly anymore because of Brexit. <laughs> exactly. So, Artie, this brings us to the next segment. This week in local news, you wouldn't believe this was true unless you lived in Geneva or really anywhere else. The first pressing story that we really needed to report on is the rapid drop in reptilian populations, and especially amphibians here in Switzerland. The ring-necked snake and, of course, the Aescolapian snake. Both made up names, by <laughs> to the protect way. The Both made up names. Interestingly, this is decline is due to, in particular, the disappearance of small structures such as ponds, edges stepped borders, stone piles, and low walls. Hmm. I thought it was due to Jennifer Lopez because she's particularly good at killing it. <laughs> that's a lot. That's, that's, that's not that bad. That's, Folks, if you don't know Google this, that. you need to get on that. You need to get on that internet. J-Lo, and look up Anaconda, and John Voight. Three things you so would never thought is, would be in the same sentence. <laughs> and you know, where the Bright Side podcast, today's Bright Side podcast, brings to you a reason for hope. So there are amphibian conservation programs which create small pools, stone piles, low walls, hedges, and the like. And the amphibians, in many cases, come back. So those little guys come right back out of the water, and they're right there again. So don't worry too much. The snakes, however, a little bit different, a little bit of a different situation. Well, we better get used to it because they'll be our neighbors pretty soon with climate change. 
So will Kevin Costner. You won't have the ice school Appian snake. You'll probably have a you'll probably have a uh, giant boa. No, J Lo took care of that. <laughs> Coming out of your toilets. <laughs> but look, not all the news is bad. I told you it's the uh, it's the bright side podcast. Um, you know, we've been talking about rare ducks a lot on this on this uh, news program, and a lot of people ask, could we have some more stories on that? And I think everybody who's around here anywhere has heard that this uh, rare duck did pass through Geneva. It's called the surf scooter in English, the Melanita perspiculata. Did you say Melania? <laughs> it's, it's recognized by the orange beak, very distinctive orange beak, very distinctive, very distinctive. Black coloring. It's a large sea duck who decided to hang out on uh, Lake Geneva, Lac Clément. And chomp some freshwater mollusks. So this was uh, this is quite the news in town. Lots of good pictures, even maybe an odd video. He's a, he's a little far from the ocean, so I'm not sure he's long for this world. But let's see. God bless you, Rob, because you are single-handedly keeping the local Geneva newspapers in business. I feel like this is kicking tree news right off the front page. I mean, who among us? Huge stuff who like among this? us thinks that a surf scooter is not more important news than six trees being deplanted? Who is looking around Geneva for a large sea duck? Nobody, I, not me. I, I want to meet the reporter who tracked down this, this duck story. Yeah, there was a kid that, that saw this and followed it and took pictures of it. This kid apparently is being feted by all... He's a content creator. He's a content creator <laughs> and maybe a little weird, but not in a good way. <laughs> who among us, honestly, has not chased ducks and taken photos of them Strange and ducks. them to their local newspaper? Strange ducks. Well, folks, that about wraps up episode 56, brought to you by climate change, green labor movements, rare ducks, and, of course, the endangered global minimum corporate taxation agreement. Nobody wants to see that go extinct. We also want to thank Valérie Picard of the ICC for confusing us about whether we should pronounce this American or French, talking to us about the business community's view of the trade space and its expanding agenda, giving us a few hints on how WTO can work better, and, of course, she's here making her case against the kebab. We also want to thank our executive producer, Michelle Olguin and Christy Bagsich for helping us highlight the vibe shift as well as in helping produce this and every TS episode. Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and make sure you catch our next episode coming out very soon. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And please stop making the same joke. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify because we do read them, especially Rob. You can follow us on Twitter at Tradesplaining or on Instagram at Trade.Splaining or email us your questions, comments at Trade.Splaining at gmail.com. Once again, that's Trade.Splaining at gmail.com. And remember, folks, listen responsibly. <laughs>